We are going to go into a time of prayer, so would you please join your hearts and your spirits with mine? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessings that you have shown us and the ways in which you have reached out and touched our lives. And we pray that we can continually be faithful to the ways in which you have led us and the ways in which you continue to guide us every, each and every day. We praise you for the many ways in which you have spoken through your ministers throughout the ages and the ways in which we've been learning about that through your word. We thank you for the messages that you have given to our pastors to share with us and as they consistently teach us who you are, what Christ has done for us, and how we can take those messages into our daily lives. We ask that you hear the prayers of our mouths and our hearts on this day. Father of us all, we celebrate and honor our fathers today. We celebrate those who are living and those who have returned to you. We lift up all fathers on this day of celebration and ask that you will bless them with wisdom and strength and the conviction of their faith to be strong Christian men of character. On this day, we ask your blessings on fathers who strive to balance the demands of home, career, and community, who live out their faith on a daily basis and teach their children by their example. We ask your blessings on fathers who have been unable to be a strong presence in their family lives and have not been able to be the dad their children need. We ask your blessings on fathers who have raised children other than their own, nurturing and caring for them with love and strength. And we ask your blessings on fathers who have been a spiritual mentor for another and encouraged them in their faith. Lord, for all fathers today, we pray that their faith will sustain them at all times, that their families will love, support, and respect them, and that they will seek your guidance every day of their lives. We celebrate our fathers and lift them up in prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, we, we, we try to announce it when someone's got their first uh, Sunday in church, and I know we missed Calvin's a few weeks ago, right? But he's here uh, back, Calvin Digman. He's a whole month old, so he, he's one of the older kids here in the church. Um, compared to little Peyton Barsky over here, who's four days old? Three days old today. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to this, this class of children right here as they go through our local high schools and are here in, uh, uh, in our church. So it's very, very exciting, and uh, we've got a lot, so that's great. Our scripture comes from Acts chapter 6. We're uh, working on the, uh, as you're aware, four ministers. Uh, we've already talked through Peter and Paul. And today we turn to the third of our ministers in Acts, uh, Stephen. We're going to start at Acts chapter 6 verse 1. And I tell you, there's two pop quizzes today. And one of them's after the first verse in the scriptures. Okay? So be prepared. Be ready. Here we go. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, here's your pop quiz. What is a Hellenistic Jew? A Greek. A Greek Jew. Okay. What's a Hebraic Jew? An Israeli Jew. I heard somebody say it. Okay, so you have 
the Greek Jews and the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews. Now remember, these folks were all part of what we call the Christian church now, but they thought they were going to just be part of Judaism because they believed the Messiah had come. So they were, uh, you know, being Messianic Jews, but there were Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews there in Jerusalem, and this little bit of a schism uh, rises up over the distribution of the food. So, going on in verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit. The Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. May God add his blessing to this reading of the Holy Scripture. Uh, will you pray with me? O oh Lord our God, we ask your blessing flow forth from your holy word, that this morning as the pastor comes to speak, he might speak it truly and clearly and purely. In your name, amen. I do want to say one brief word to fathers this morning. Um, two things. For all of you that have had a great father, that's awesome. Congratulations. Our fathers uh, embed uh, a moral compass in us. They uh, give us the uh, opportunity and the ability to become uh, fully uh, men or women. Uh, many of them have planted the seed of the gospel. And if you've had that kind of a dad, uh, I'm so grateful uh, for that. And, and I praise God for that. I also will tell you, and I, I will sadly say, I'm sure there are some of us here that did not have that kind of a father. And so I'm going to remind you of what something my colleague and friend Stan Wilson used to say frequently. He said, you know, if your earthly father failed you, rest comfortly, comfortably in the fact that you have a heavenly father, and he shall never fail you, he has not failed you, and shall not. Cling to that because you always will have at least one great father. And to those of you that have children still in your home, I have to say this, because I don't have children in my home anymore. I have a 19 and 22-year-old. 
And I say to you this, yesterday morning I brought them both home from the hospital. At noon they went to junior high school. In the afternoon they graduated from high school. And tomorrow morning they're getting married. Enjoy this thing. Enjoy the ride. It goes quickly. Um, All the old dads say to you, enjoy it while it's happening. Enjoy it while it's happening. Here we go. In 1990, I was standing on a very cool February morning. Rain just kind of cascading down on us as we stood outside what the Jews call the Lion's Gate on the east wall of the holy city of Jerusalem, but in a place that Christians call the St. Stephen's Gate. Our Jewish guide, who was speaking to 75 Christian pastors, was talking to us about what had happened throughout history at that gate, and he came to the moment where this Jewish guide began to tell Christian pastors about Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And as he talked on, he said, Now understand this, pastors. Stephen was in such awe of God. He was in such awe of God that when pushed to the test, he would not turn his God away. And he was willing to die for that. I was incredibly challenged there because that's a story I know. I know the story about Stephen and I needed to dig into it and dive into it just a little bit deeper because there is a challenge that Stephen's ministry gives to us. And I want to share that with you in a couple of moments. Because this we know about Stephen. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He was tried by the Sanhedrin and he ferociously indicted the Jews that were there. You'll read that and we'll read that next week in chapter 7. And then he says this after he talks about all their history from Moses through the current day. He says this, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been to a lot of pastor's meetings And if you want to make friends with pastors, that's not the way to go, okay? You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's not where you go. And here is Peter, or Stephen, saying to this. And then he goes on to say, has there ever been, ever been a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? And then every prophet that came forward predicting the righteous one, They murdered. And you were just like them. Because when the righteous one came, you murdered him. They go into a rage. They go into an absolute rage. They drag him outside the lion's gate. They line him up. And then Stephen has what's called a theophany. You can look it up later. A theophany is where a human being sees a physical apparition of God. And Stephen, outside the, 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 the lion's gate of Jerusalem, looks up and sees God the Father, and beside him, God the Son. He turns to the crowd that's enraged in front of them, forgives them, and then they stone him. Now, that's what we know about Stephen. We really don't know where Stephen came from. <clears throat> we don't know if he was one of the early converts at the day of Pentecost. But what we do know is that by 34 AD, which is very early in the Christian church history, Stephen was one of the leaders of the church. And he came to leadership because the church was divided. 
I mean, I kind of already explained the situation to you in the scriptures. We already looked at that, that we have the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, and one group thinks they're getting more food than the other. The unfortunate thing for us is that we think division in the church is very disappointing. It's very discouraging for Christians. We hate to hear about divisions in the church. But let's understand this. There is, from time to time, division in the church because we're different. So be encouraged. See, conflict seems to characterize the human experience in community. Jesus says, when two or more of you are gathered, there I am in, your mit- in the midst. We also know that when two or three of us are gathered, there is difference of opinion in our midst, right? If it was not true, would not it just be Baskin-Robbins one flavor? Right? We have different thoughts and opinions. And because the human community characterizes differences, we're going to have problems. And so humanity, because it fills the Christian movement, that's all that the Christian movement's filled of, is people. It's a very social religion. We have to understand that even in the earliest times in the church, the church was not pristine because it was filled with people. Look at Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira lie on their pledge card and they drop dead. Okay? In chapter 6, you have people fighting about the amount of food. Later on in Acts, we'll see Peter and Paul go after it a little bit, deciding who should get communion and who should not. The church was never perfect, but we need not be discouraged about that. Because rather than being discouraged by the fact that the historic church was not perfect, we can become encouraged by that and gain comfort and courage to do the work that the church asks us to because the church has never been perfect. And that's awesome for us because we're not perfect either. We are the absolute right candidates for the, word that, the, the work that God has us to do. But here's what God does. It says the church is never perfect. And then it says in scriptures, but God. And every time it says, but God, understand that God is changing the course of natural things. But see, when we talk about human community, we have to add in there, but God has continually been present with the church using fallible instruments to do great things for him. I got a phone call. You know, every pastor will tell you they got this phone call. They will. But I'm the one that actually got it, okay? I am. This really happened. A lady called me not so long ago and said, Pastor, we've heard a lot of good things about your church, and we're looking for a perfect church. I said to her, Would a perfect church allow you to be a member? I say that to you, too. If there was a perfect church, would the perfect church allow you to be a member? See, there's no perfect churches, because, you know, unless you got the church of one, you know. But, but there is no perfect church because there's no perfect people. We all fall down as we seek to do God's word. So, so the good news is, if there's no perfect church, we can do something about making the church better. We're the right candidates for this work. And the witness of the early church is that a church does not have to be perfect to have a powerful witness in its community. A church does not have to be perfect to have an effective witness in the place it, 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 it is. So let, let me go here to Stephen's ministry. Because Stephen, I think, lives in that context. The context of Stephen's ministry is a context of imperfect church. 
imperfect world. So here's what Stephen says. Stephen's ministry, I think, is a continual challenge to Christians, and I think there's three main challenges. So if you're a person that writes things down, here's the first one. How many risks do we take in being a follower of Jesus? There was a quarterback a long time ago. Some of you will remember. This was, this was when John Madden was a football coach before he was a commentator or a video game that long ago. He was the coach of the Oakland Raiders, and the quarterback for the Oakland Raiders was a guy named Kenny the Snake Stapler. And right across the street from the Oakland Raiders training camp was the Jack London Museum, you know, the author. And one of the beat writers went over there and wrote something down that Jack London had written, and he showed it to Stabler right there in the middle of training camp, and he says, what's your action to this? This is what he showed him. He says, I want to know what this means, Kenny. He says, this is what Jack London wrote. I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. The proper function of men is to live, not exist. Stabler thought about that for a long time. He says, I know what it means. It means throw deep. Throw deep. Think about it. Okay, if you're in a football scenario situation, if you throw the ball deep, what we used to call the long bomb, there's three things that can happen. Two of them are bad. One, it can be intercepted. Second, it can be deflected and knocked down. But the third thing could be very good. You could score a long gain or or, or get a touchdown. But that's a giant risk. And of course, the point is, when we look at Stephen's ministry, this first challenge is, are we taking risks for Jesus? Are we willing to take giant risks for Jesus? Now, you've heard this preached from time to time. You've heard it brought up from time to time. So let me give you this little legs, this. I, I want to tell you about a girl named Noelle Rosales. Noelle Rosales walked into my office one day. This was new to me. Listen to what happened. She walked in with a suitcase. It was all gothed up, you know. And she says to me, I need somewhere to live. First time I met her. I need somewhere to live. This was a homeless kid, a 15 or 16-year-old. I think she was 16, just bouncing around. Parents out of the scenario. Of course, I'm a pastor. So the people I know who could give someone like that a place to live were Christians. I called upon some Christians. They took Noel in like she was one of their own. As days went by, she began to wear less and less of that. But she was a gorgeous little girl. But she started wearing less of the goth thing. She started to come alive, come to the youth group thing. And after about living with us, about three months, living in the church community, she came in one day. And she, she talked clearly about how she'd been rescued from drugs and alcohol, how she'd been rescued from some stuff I don't want to talk to you about in church, but some very bad things. And she came into the office one day and she said, I want to play a song for you on the piano. I said, Cool church got lots of pianos me and a couple other people walked in the church and while we were walking in we said how long you been playing the piano nicole she says couple months expectations went down a little bit there who's your teacher she said i taught myself she sat down at the piano she started cording out with her left hand she started running up and down the keys with her right hand and this melody she had it was like just gripping it got into my spirit and i was like this is just awesome she says no wait 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 i want to sing the words i wrote to it and she starts singing this song about being rescued by god and about how god is the answer to to all people's problems and it just gutted me 
And she finished, and of course, I'm like tearing up. I'm so proud of her because I know where she's been, have no idea where she's going. But I said, Noel, you got to sing that in church. And she just looks at me, and she says, I don't want to sing it at church. They all know this. I said, well, that's awesome. Hope it's right. She says, I want to sing it at my school talent show. I thought, well, that's a pretty big risk. It was later that week. Fort Dodge Senior High School, Fort Dodge, Iowa. I went over. Stage was just, you know, a big naked stage because this is a talent show. You know that? Dancing people, juggling bears, all that kind of stuff on the talent show. And when no- no- Noel's piece came up, they rolled a piano right dead in the center of the stage, shoved a microphone in front of her, and she sat down, and she started to play, and the whole place went quiet. They knew, some of them knew a little bit about what was going on, but she started playing, and then when she started singing, people stood, I thought it was in a Lifetime movie, I'm not kidding you. People stood up, and they started cheering, and stomping their feet, and there were people crying, and they were just like, it was like this revival at Fort Dodge Senior High School. I mean, it was like going on right there, and when she stopped, there was this thunderous ovation. I mean, thunderous, and you know, you know, like uncomfortable long ovation. They would not stop clapping, and this little teacher, you know, she came up there. She was kind of managing the talent show, and there were like three acts left before the intermission, and she just kind of grabbed the microphone and said, I can see we're not getting you choir down we'll just take an intermission now so noel meets me at the back because i sat way by the at the back just in case it went bad i could get out right and so i'm sitting back there she comes and everybody's coming by and hugging her and patting her on the back tell her she did a great job i said noel that was awesome and she says you know pastor mike it could have gone either way yeah it was a huge risk and there she was leading this thing to all broken kids in the Fort Dodge Senior High School. What a risk. You know, we have to take giant risks for, for Jesus. Now, we probably won't be in that situation because most of us aren't homeless. Most of us aren't, in, you know, deep in some drug culture. But this could happen to us because this happened to one of our members. One of, one of you guys called me a few weeks ago and said, Mike, I just took a huge risk. I said, what's up? He says, I... My neighbor, oh, across the street, down one house. Across the street, down one house. Been my neighbor for 30 years. His wife died a few weeks ago, and he's just been kind of wandering around. He doesn't know what to do. And so he was carrying his, you know, getting the trash bins in. He says, I went out there, and I carried the trash bin in. And we got in the garage, and I said, how you doing? He started telling me. He says, Mike, I have no idea where this came from. But I said, can I pray for you? He says, you know, I've been this guy's friend 30 years. It could have gone either way. I'm like, yeah, it could have gone either way. He might not ever talk to me again. Or he might have said yes. And he did say yes. And, and, and your friend went on to say to me, he says, I know it wasn't the best prayer ever in the world. I said, oh, for him it was. That's awesome. But it could have gone either way. Anytime you take a risk, it couldn't go either way. It could go well, it could go poorly, but we have to contemplate. You know, this message of, of Stephen is that we have to take risks, and we have to ask ourselves, what risk am I willing to take to be an effective disciple of Jesus Christ? The second challenge that, that, that Stephen throws out there is, are we willing to do what we're good at for Christ and his community? See, Stephen takes this ministry of faith and marries it with works. Because you know what Stephen was, in essence, I mean, let's just think about what Stephen would be doing in common time today. Stephen was the fly coordinator, right? He's distributing the food. 
That would have been his job. He'd have been distributing the food. But Stephen lived for Christ by serving others. He was an effective administrator. He was an effective uh, messenger. And he was an effective servant before he became our first Christian martyr. Before he became the standard of one who is in awe of God and willing to give their all for God. Because Stephen knew the words of Jesus. If you're faithful in small tasks, you'll be faithful in large tasks. So for Stephen, striving for excellence in small assignments was preparing him for greater assignments. And nothing was below these godly men. These are the new rock stars in the church. They weren't just able bodies. They were the best bodies the church had right now. They were the best leaders, the best caregivers, the best preachers. And they are called to serve the Lord in a very unglamorous way. You know, we have some of that going on right now in our church. I don't know if you know, but our 412 space, not going over undergoing a huge expensive remodeling, but we're going to have an open house in a few weeks and we hope you all come. But it's going over under a huge uh, volume of labor remodeling right now. And, and we have a guy in our church, he's actually here right now, that's probably given over 100 hours rewiring the building over there because he has that skill. And he's willing to give it to God. We have another man that usually comes to this service who is willing to give his plumbing skills to taking out some of our old heaters over there because he has those skills. This week, we have Bible school. You know we have some people that are trained and educated teachers that teach for money. That's their living every single day. They're going to come and teach children at the church because they have that gift. They're going to do that every week, every day this week. You know, we have lots of things, unglamorous things that people are called to all the time because they have the skills. And we believe that every member at First United Methodist Church needs to be a minister. They need to be called. Vicki and I and Keith were on the phone with Elmer Collier this week. Elmer Collier is the director of United Methodist Education at the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary. And we want him to come over here to First Methodist. We want him to come over here and teach a class to some of our people and, and some of you all and, and uh, be part of our Wesleyan Academy that's, that we're going to be unrolling pretty soon. And he says, you know, I have reservations about that, Mike. He says, I'll tell you why. He says, because in concept, what you've got on paper is pretty good and what you're telling me about is pretty good. But here's my fear. The North American church is consumed by its culture. And the culture of the church is consumerism. So many people come to church and they do nothing but more than consume religious goods and services. They hear a sermon, they hear a song, they have a donut, and they just consume it. He says that was never supposed to be the church. The church was supposed to be a community of genuine fellowship. And if we can do education in the context of genuine fellowship, if we can do education in the context of what's called koinonia, in, in, in the Greek terms, he says, I'm interesting to interested to do that, but you have to be willing to give me a little bit of an insight to show me that your folks are willing to do what they are good at for Christ, not simply receive services. We do for Christ because we can. The third and last challenge that Stephen gives to the church, and I'll wrap this up because the time says I need to, is this. Are we willing to live Really live for Christ. See, real understanding, if we have a real understanding of God, it always leads to practical and compassionate action towards people. Fred Craddock is the professor of uh, preaching at, the Emory, at Emory University Candler School of Theology. And he oftentimes 
says this. I've heard him say it a number of times in sermon. He says, dying for Christ is relatively easy. It's like giving a million dollars to the church. It's a one-time gift. It's a one-time decision, dying for Christ. But he says, before a person can die for Christ, he has to live for Christ. He has to live for the gospel. He has to live his life for the gospel. And we're supposed to say, here's my living, Lord. I live it for you. It's like taking that million dollars. This is an image. Going over to your bank and exchanging that million dollars for a million bucks worth of quarters and filling up the back of a pickup truck. And then in your living, you live it out 25 cents at a time. You know, you drive someone to church that can't drive anymore, 25 cents. You walk across the street to pray with a neighbor, 25 cents. You help somebody mow their lawn that's on vacation or, or has got a broken leg, 25 cents. And you give it out in increments like that, day by day, every breath, every action for the rest of your life. See, giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's a bit at a time over the long haul. Now, that's the big challenge that Stephen brings to us. In the next few weeks, Pastor Keith and I are going to flesh out his mission. We're going to flesh out his method. And we're going to flesh out his message. So I encourage you to come back. Uh, May we pray. Uh, God, we thank you for the many things that you give us in life. Uh, For life, uh, for the opportunity to be fathers or have a great father the opportunity to hear the challenge that you give us and be in awe of your greatness and glory. We ask, O God, that we might serve you well always. In Jesus' name, amen.